Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Good morning, Westside. Uh, it's good to see you and good to be here and be together. Um, two more weeks in our Genesis series, and we are going to devote them to the character of Joseph. Chapters 37 through 50 in the book of Genesis are about Joseph. This is the longest, most focused, sustained narrative about a single character in the book of Genesis. And so we're going to take two full weeks to, um, to pay attention to the details about who he is and what he does. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are the, the three figures through whom God is going to send these covenant promises into the world, and we get a long stretch about them. Chapters 12 through 36 are about the establishing of that line. But then after 36, the question is, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, what's going to happen with Jacob's family? If this is God's plan, if this is how God is going to bring his blessing into the world, let's take a look at that family and see what it's going to look like. Let's see how this is going to go. Uh, So we're going to pick up in chapter 37 uh, today and work our way through a few chapters to get a sense. We're just going to plop down in a couple of places to get a sense for who this Joseph guy is and where he fits. What I want to do at the beginning of chapter 37 here is just sort of set the scene for who he is and how he relates to his particular family. Genesis 37, starting in verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, interesting that Joseph is the first one mentioned. He's not the youngest, not the oldest. He's just the first one mentioned. It's a a clue right out the gate. This is going to be a story about him. Uh, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, And he brought their father a bad report about them. Yeah. Uh, uh, One one verse into the story of Joseph. And the very first detail that we get about Joseph is telling. It it is uh, noteworthy and it will um, rear its head again. We learn right away that Joseph is a punk. (laughs) Joseph, Joseph is a punk. Our very first detail, Joseph is a tattletale, right? Dad. Just log that away for a moment. Joseph is a bit of now, Israel loved Joseph. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to, to Israel. We looked at that. 
Uh, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, which is just like a real bold detail to include in a story, right? Uh, but we see it play out um, because he had born, uh, he was born, he had been born to him in his old age. He made an ornate robe for him, Joseph in his coat of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph's brothers uh, had not watched Bambi. You can't say nothing nice, just don't say nothing at all. Um, these are pre-Bambi days. <clears throat> there is nothing but tension in the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. Part of that is because he is a punk, and part of that is because of their father's just overt affection for him more than them. So two facts here. Joseph is a punk, but also Joseph's family is dysfunctional. It is dysfunctional right from the get-go. You, you have this family with, I mean, he's got brothers from four different moms, right? At the end of chapter 35, uh, chapter 35, verses 23 through 36, we see Jacob has has sons through Leah and through Rachel and through Bilhah and Zilpah, who are Rachel and Leah's uh, servants. And so right out the gate, we get this kind of complicated family situation put before us. And it's not real pretty. There's just hatred between the brothers. Sibling rivalry, rivalry, but like on steroids. And this is the family that God is choosing to use, right? And, and we're already starting to scratch our heads a little bit. We're like, how, why? Why this group? Why not like a group of just like loving, supportive, and all of, all of those words that we like to use about a, why not, why don't we see that? And it's, it's confusing on one front, but I think it ought to be encouraging on another that dysfunction is not disqualification. Yeah, praise the Lord, right? Dysfunction is not disqualification. And even more interestingly, God doesn't look to fix this situation. Instead, he uses it, uses the people in the midst of it. Now, there's a lot of work that we ought to be doing, right? We all experience some measure of dysfunction in our lives, and it is... Um, it is a part of our discipleship to it to Christ, part of our following Jesus, to be working on those areas, those relationships in our lives, doing what we can um, to mend broken spots and to cross bridges that we, we thought might have been burned. Like doing that work is an important part of, of following Jesus faithfully. It absolutely is. Uh, however, we do not have to come to the end of that work before God starts to do his thing, before God starts to work and use us and use those around us. 
it, no matter what, it, it seems like no matter what scenario in life or what realm of life we're thinking about, we always sort of tend towards like, well, once I get this figured out, then. And that is simply not the way God works. God comes and meets us in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the junk and says, how are we going to work through this? I want, I want fixing to happen. I want healing to happen. Yes, but I don't have to wait for that stuff to come to full fruition before I can use you, before I can work. And it just ought to, everybody just take like a, a deep breath, just like a sigh, just like, just know, like the, that junk that builds up in the heart thinking about an old relationship or something like that. God wants to meet you in the midst of it, not wait for you to figure it out. Dysfunction is never a disqualification, which is good because there's more of it here. Uh, <coughs> starting uh, verse five, pick up in verse five. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. <laughs> like not for one moment did Joseph think like, mm, that's a little dream I'm going to keep to myself. <laughs> that was a nice little thing. Hmm. Just like smile to himself, smirk to himself throughout the course of the day, as a punk might do. But no, as a as a full-on punk, Joseph's like, you know what? I should tell my brothers about this whole them bowing down to me thing. And then it gets better. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hated him all the more. That's three mentions of hatred now, just so if you're keeping track at home. Uh hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. It wasn't just the having the dream. It was the need to say it out loud. Come on. Get it. Verse 9. Then he, said, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So, of course, they go get mom and dad. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his fathers rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? The question that uh, answers itself. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. I, I hear that phrase, the father kept the matter in mind. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Is there another character? Yeah, it sounds like Mary, doesn't it? Mary, when Jesus is very, very young, very, very early days, these things begin to transpire in Jesus' life, and we get this little detail about Mary, that Mary pondered these things. She treasured those things, and she pondered them in her heart. And it's just a little clue. This is, as we, as we get further into our faith and the more that we read scripture, we start to hear these little details and we ought to pay attention to them when they stand out to us. These little like overlaps, these little um, 
threads that get picked up throughout scripture. Here, Joseph's father gets sort of prefigured as as this parent of a particular chosen one. And so we ought to just have a clue right now. So for the rest of the story of Joseph, let's think, let's maybe be on the lookout for ways that he may prefigure another chosen son to come. Is Joseph a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament? Let's, let's maybe consider how that might take place. The end of chapter 37 is the story of Joseph getting sold by his brothers uh, into slavery. There's sibling rivalry, and then there's, hey, let's kill our brother uh, rivalry. Uh, and that's the level that we're at here, uh, relational health-wise, in the, in the story of, of Joseph and his brothers. And he's got a couple of brothers who are a little bit on his side. are like, hey, let's maybe not kill him, and then we'll, we'll just throw him in a pit. Um, they throw him in a pit, and then they go on and sell him. Sell him on into slavery, play the worst trick of all time on their father, who they know will be distraught. The last verse of thirty of chapter thirty-seven. Um, Hebrew stories are so interesting. Like this, they give us these little clues, these little um, foreshadowing verses. Every once in a while, at the end of this, like the, what we would think would be the lowest moment of Joseph's life, we get this little clue. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Pause for chapter 38. Chapter 38 is a scene that diverts from Joseph and tells us about one of Joseph's brothers who is immoral and uses um, a very poor judgment in that story. We'll come back to talking about how that chapter fits in here in a little bit. Skip down to chapter 39, where we pick back up on the story of Joseph. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. I want to read verses 2 through 6 here. And just pay attention. I'll inflect it with my, my reading, but just pay attention to where God is present in this story. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in, the, in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Everything Joseph touches turns to gold. Why? Because, because God is with him. The Lord is with Joseph. And the fascinating and I think one of the most important details 
of this story, one of the most important facets of the character Joseph. As we read through the story, his whole lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God spoke with, God communed with each of those characters. God specifically met with each of them. Not so with Joseph. We don't get any detail about Joseph's relationship with God. Instead, we get the detail, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him over and over again. The Lord is with him and the Lord blessed him. We get that, that repeated all throughout the story. And the question we ought to be asking is, how do we know? How would anybody know? How would Joseph know? How would, how would Joseph know that God was with him if there was no like actual communication? Now, uh, we have to be careful, like, so absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So in other words, just because it's not recorded in the story doesn't mean it didn't, didn't happen. But when you contrast Joseph, Joseph's interactions with God versus Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it feels so intentional that that part is left out. But we still get these details that Joseph is able to see God at work. And I can't help but, but wonder. Like We have to ask, how did this detail get into the story, and I can't help but wonder that if Joseph, at the end of his life, after he'd been through everything, as he was telling the story of his life around the fire, as he was telling that story to his kids and grandkids, he'd go through each and every detail, and he would he would come to the end of a scene and say, "And God was with me, and I knew God was there." Joseph, how did, you, how did you know God was with you in that moment? He, I just knew. I knew he was there. I didn't always hear his voice. I didn't always see what was happening. But I knew he was there. And it's, God, it's so instructive for us because God can be silent and God can seem absent. God, God can seem to go quiet for a bit. We go through seasons where we're just like, I'm not hearing it right now. And God can seem absent. And we have so many different um, instances in our life where that could be the case. There's so many of us who have struggled with the absence of God, like, like to go through the journey of faith is to struggle at some point with the absence of God in some scenario, with some relationship, with some something. Just wonder where on earth is God in that? And Joseph is just this little reminder. This is the this is the character that we get more information about than any other, and he's the one who does not see God specifically in the stuff that is happening. And yet he is the one who chooses the lens of faith. It's that faith and faithfulness that we were talking about last week. Because we learn from Joseph, feeling God is not a requisite for faithfulness to God. Feeling God is not a requisite for faithfulness to God. Feeling God is part of our relationship 
with him, but it's not the sum total of it. And when we rely so heavily on, well, I'm, I'm just not feeling it today, when our, when our focus and our fixation becomes on that, whether I'm feeling it or not today, whether I'm feeling God or not today, like how flimsy of a faith is that? How unstable of a foundation? Joseph's like, no matter what, I'm going to resolve to see the faithfulness of God, the nearness of God in these particular situations. Even when he is betrayed. He's betrayed by his brother, and then we see another instance of it here, picking up in, in the end of verse 6 here. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Joseph was a fine-looking man. <clears throat> he was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife noticed that he was a fine-looking man and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife, remember? How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or to even be with her. Joseph's answer here is fascinating. He comes face to face with a, with a with temptation, with a tempting situation, and his reasoning in his answer reveals his character. It we would think that he would say no way, I can't do that because it is wrong in the eyes of God. Which he does say, but he doesn't say that first. Joseph's reasoning reveals his character. He shows first that his relational ecosystem, like all of the, like the web of relationships that he has been entrusted to and put over and put in the midst of, he uses that reasoning first. With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern. He thinks about all of the horizontal consequences that that would fall. Everything that would crumble if he were to do this thing. And then he moves to how could I do this thing and sin against God. He uses his relational ecosystem to keep him from making a foolish decision. It's a good thing sometimes to say, I'm not going to do that because it would hurt so-and-so. It would screw up this area of my life. Not just, is it wrong? Yes, it is wrong. But then think about all the stuff that would unravel. Joseph has a list. Do you have a list? A list of the stuff that would unravel were you to fall in this particular way. The stuff that would blow up. Joseph has a list, and he starts with that list. He's like, this is the system that God has put me and, and I'm not going to put that at risk for a fleeting moment of pleasure. And then he uses the God card. His relationship with God bolsters his morality, but it's not the only contributing factor to it. This is so significant. He uses God to, to say like, no, I would not, how could I possibly sin against God? But that is his secondary reasoning. 
We got to have horizontal and vertical axis in our accountability and in our reasoning and the way that we think through our decisions. That's a fascinating little answer. But it's another story of betrayal in, in Joseph's life. And yet it's still not the, the end of the story for him. We'll pick up at the end of chapter 39. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Again, another detail there. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. We get very similar language to describe the situation all over again. Whenever Joseph gets put in a particular place, he immediately rises to the top of it. Why? Because God's with him. How do we know? Joseph says so. He rises to the top again and again and again just because God is with him and God is blessing him. Now, if we think about the broader story arc here, chapter 37, we get this picture of Joseph and his family and the betrayal that happens there. In chapter 39, we get Joseph's character amidst betrayal, and in between is Judah's immorality. We're meant to see these two pictures. This is, chapter 38 is an interruption in the story. Judah, in a comfortable position, back at home, having sold his brother, everything's fine in, in Judah's life. In the midst of that comfort, he doesn't have the horizontal or the vertical access. He, do, he doesn't have either of those axes in his like moral reasoning, in his character. Contrast that comfortable character who, who does not... Uh, who does not have the, the proper character, the proper reasoning, with Joseph in a foreign land, in a dungeon, and yet he's still able to hold on to that morality piece because of where God has put him and who God is. These two stand in contrast, and yet Joseph is betrayed yet again. Genesis 40 and 41 tell these repeating stories. Uh, when Joseph gets into a new scenario, he turns out to be these inter this interpreter of dreams. Finally, somebody gets to hear something good about jo Joseph's. Uh, well, it's not Joseph's dreams, it's somebody else's dreams. That, and it works out a little bit better for him this time, but only a little bit. The cupbearer <coughs> the cupbearer and the baker bring to him dreams. He interprets both of them. One of them gets um, terminated the way that he uh, the way that he said, and the other moves on and completely forgets about Joseph. He said, "When I when I move on into the upper ranks, I'll I'll tell people about you, Joseph. I I got you, buddy. I got your back." Completely forgets about. <laughs> Joseph, I love the, the little detail in 41.9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Whoops. A couple years later, I realized I forgot all about my buddy Joseph. Joseph's doing for others and yet getting, getting forgotten. And then he gets the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And 
as a result, gives this prediction, this um, forward-looking like report of what's going to happen in the next 14 years. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. He's like, you got this dream twice because God is going to do it, and he's going to do it right now. And Pharaoh's like, uh, cool, that sounds right. Let's, let's go with that. And once again, Joseph, brought out of prison, rises immediately to the top. And now he's Pharaoh's like right-hand man. And we get this interesting detail at the end of chapter 41. Starting in verse 51, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Manasseh. Nasha, uh, uh, the, the verb to forget, turned into a noun, turned into a name. Because there, was, there were some things that Joseph kind of had to shut himself off to in some sense. God let me put those things uh, behind me or so he thinks. <laughs> this is just part one of this series. So he, he has a son, names him Manasseh. He's like, I'm, I'm able to put all of that stuff behind me. Not heal from it, as we will see, but just put it behind. It's a fascinating little name. The, the second son he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The Hebrew word for, for fruit is peri. Uh, sounds like pear. It's an easy Hebrew vocab word. Evan and Justin would know. And this is just built off of that word. Para is to bear fruit, and Ephraim is the name, bearing fruit. These two sons, I'm able to put behind the difficult the difficulty of the, the past. And Joseph has been through so much. Betrayed at every level. Forgotten. Forgotten by people, betrayed by people, and yet remembered by God. Forgotten, really, for no reason. It, it's not that Joseph is faultless. I mean, Joseph, remember, well established. Joseph is a punk. Like, we, like he's, he had some of it coming to him, right? With his relationship with his brothers. But everywhere he goes along the way, it seems like he's making proper decisions. And yet he just gets forgotten time and time again. And yet in the midst of that, he's still able to say, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. What better gospel name than Ephraim? God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph's a fascinating character to me. He, he develops the discipline over the years, over these long, quiet years from God, where he's just been through all of the ups and the downs. But he, he develops the discipline over the years of seeing God in the good while not fixating on the bad. And there, like, there is no 
worse bad than like getting sold and left for dead by your next of kin, by your brothers. And then getting forgotten about, getting lied about. And Joseph remarkably is able to say, God helped me through all of it. God sustained me through every last little bit. It's a, it's a pretty stern challenge, I think, for us. We've talked a lot throughout the book of Genesis about the nature of faith. And we saw it through the story of, of Abraham in particular, just choosing to be faithful through long seasons where we're not seeing things come to fruition. Uh, I think this kind of ups the ante a little bit. The story of, of Joseph shows us like faithfulness in a foreign land when you've been forgotten by everybody. Like no one would have blamed Joseph for just phoning it in at any particular moment. But but he fixates on the good instead of the struggle. God meets us in the struggle. but God also wants to bring about good. You know, I find, I find it fascinating that this passage falls as we come into Thanksgiving week and we could all, we could all list the struggles right now. We could list the pains and the hurts from our community, from our own lives, from society at large, from international crises like there's there's su there's such a long laundry list of, of of difficult and true and like painful things that we are having to navigate and in the midst of that God calls us he beckons us towards gratitude thanks faith in this way is is countercultural. It is a subversive practice to, in the midst of the negativity, to say, I am going to stand my ground and say thank you to this God. Even though I might not see it right now, even though I might not feel him in my life immediately, right, like right here and now. I'm going to stand my ground and give thanks. And this is so hard to do. But one of the ways that we can help activate gratitude in our lives is is to look back a little bit. So I want you to think for a moment. What's an area of your life where you have seen God at work, but only in retrospect? Where you look back maybe a week, a month, a year, a decade later, and you see, oh man, God was using that situation. It did not feel like it in the moment. In the moment, it just sucked. It was hard. It was painful. I didn't want that thing to be happening right then. But then you look back and you see God was working. Got like five that come to the top of my head. So with that in mind, 
can, can we take that perspective and then shift to life right now? Shift to life in the present. What's an area in your life right now where you just, you need the reminder that God is present? You might not hear him, you might not see him, you might not feel that he is there in that moment. But is there something in your life right now? There is probably something in your life right now where you just need the reminder that God is going to just still be there, whether we, whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not. And then what will you bring to God in gratitude this week? Can you, while not necessarily seeing it, not necessarily feeling it, Find something in your heart to say, God, I am grateful for this. There's, there's, so, much, there's so many benefits to gratitude. I mean, the studies are starting to, to show, like there's psychological, social, emotional, mental benefits to the practice of gratitude. It helps orient our perspective. It helps shift like our our perspective on life and and others and ourselves like gratitude can like make a physiological change within us are we willing to put ourselves out there and let gratitude pull us along to faith it's so it's awesome to me that god like gives us these practices and commands these practices we see him we see him all throughout the psalms it, the command towards gratitude is one of the things that, that the Apostle Paul commands of the church more, more often than, than most. And be grateful. Be grateful, folks. Because when you are a grateful person, you are, you are swimming in the waters of faith when you can bring yourself to gratitude, even in a moment where, where it doesn't feel like it. The story of Joseph pushes us, nudges us in this particular way. Worship team, why don't you kind of come on up. We're going to we're going to sing about being the beloved of God. And of all the things that we ought to be orienting our heart and our attitude toward right now, this reminder that God loves us deeply Regardless of our ability to see and to feel it, God, God's love is the truest thing about us. Let's, let's sing it in gratitude together.